Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the Eastern family. Tonight's broadcast represents another recording of our great airline's history as told by its people. Many of our stories are taken from publications such as The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, Pitcairn Newswing, and the Silverliners magazine, and many other books and publications. The jacket or dust cover, as it is sometimes referred to, uh, of the Wings of Man book, which we find many of our stories, states the dedication of the book. It reads, In January 1991, Eastern Airlines, once among America's oldest and largest U.S. airlines, ceased operations. This book recalls some of Eastern's proud history, full of aviation firsts, including the legendary Air Shuttle, 
between New York, Boston, and Washington, routes to Florida, the Caribbean, and Mexico, and the launching of the Boeing 727 and 757 aircraft. Eastern was also a launch customer of the Lockheed L-1011, TriStar, and introduced the Airbus A300B, the world's first wide-bodied twin in the United States. During its storied life, Eastern cared for numerous celebrities aboard its famous restaurant flights, replete with Rosenthal China, laden with sumptuous food, and accompanied by beverages. The future president, John F. Kennedy, was photographed being boarded on a stretcher on an eastern constellation at Logan Airport, attended faithfully by eastern stewardesses. First Lady Jackie Kennedy chose eastern to fly to Acapulco with Babe Ruth and Muhammad Ali were frequent customers. The list is endless. In 1973, President Richard Nixon awarded Eastern service to the Caribbean islands with its acquisition of Caribair. The airline created a luxury hotel affiliation with Lawrence Rockefeller in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands through Rock Resorts. In addition, Eastern laid the foundation for airport security as we know it today and supported troop movements during World War II and Vietnam. Eastern was the official airline of Walt Disney World. This unique book features many other significant events written by former employees and friends of the airline, joining together again to record for posterity their fond remembrances of the airline. Wonderful photographs from Eastern's archives, as well as those shared by those who wrote about their experiences with the airline, provide the perfect complement. Among the more than 70 stories are recollections about the people who built Eastern, including Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, Floyd Hall, Captain Dick Merrill, Chief Financial Officer Charlie Simons, Vice President Russ Ray, and President Sam Higginbottom. In addition are stories about Eastern's transition from props to the jet era, the fate brought on by deregulation, numerous hijackings, and tragic accidents, including the first fatal accident of a wide-bodied airline, Flight 401, in the Everglades. Also included are recollections of the inauguration of Eastern's Latin America and London routes. Finally, the personal recollections of flight attendants, pilots, and rank-and-file employees from a variety of departments and job functions are featured, many of which have never been previously told. This book is dedicated to all those Eastern Airlines employees who, despite the suffering caused by the often adversarial relationship between the workforce and management during its last years, maintain such a high degree of camaraderie that retiree organizations such as EARA, REPA, and the Silverliners continue to thrive today, 25 years after the bitter shutdown of service. 
Now, here to read additional stories from this book and other publications that we mention are Harry and Linda Lindquist. Harry was a former pilot crew scheduler. I'm Neil Holland, assisting in the broadcast as producer and a host of the show. I was a former pilot based in Atlanta for most of my career with Eastern. We hope you enjoy these memories shared by the authors of the stories. Harry or Linda, let's get started with tonight's episode. This is by Mary Ann Grimer called Loaning Robert Kennedy a Dime. I was the ground hostess at LaGuardia Airport working the main terminal and also the shuttle terminal. At the shuttle terminal, we had departures and arrivals to and from Boston, Massachusetts, and Washington, D.C. every hour. We often had VIPs and politicians coming and going. Ted and Robert Kennedy were frequent flyers and would come in and out of the terminal on a regular basis. We would always exchange a pleasant hello. Although I saw them on a regular basis, I would never ask for an autograph. On September 25, 1963, Robert Kennedy came through, and I was standing close to the check-in counter. He had to make a phone call and didn't have any money on him. The Kennedys were known for not traveling with cash, and cell phones were then in the future. He asked me for a dime, and I gave him the change. He made his phone call and gave me back my dime. I then asked him if he would sign a piece of paper. After he was assassinated, I found a poem that I thought was fitting, and I put them both in a frame. They are a reminder of another time. One thing I can say, Robert Kennedy borrowed money from me. Eastern Airlines, Los Angeles City. Los Angeles City. Where the west coast breezes flow so free. See this place here? This is my million dollar baby. I make hamburgers. Most people here feel very free to do what they want and to express themselves. It's got a lot of freeways and it's got a lot of cars and I love it. Los Angeles. One of the places that make Eastern Airlines what it is. The second largest passenger carrier of all the airlines. Why don't we go back and take a look at one of Eastern's most uh, famous assets. It was the Eastern Airlines Air Shuttle. I'm going to read an article from Wikipedia about the shuttle and also a couple of vignettes from the book From the Captain to the Colonel by Robert J. Serling. Eastern Airlines Shuttle, or Eastern Air Shuttle, was a brand name of Eastern's Air Shuttle that began on April 30, 1961. The shuttle originally flew between New York City, Boston, Washington, and Newark. The shuttle became part of the fabric of business and government travel in the Northeast Corridor. No reservations were needed. Passengers showed up at the terminal, and if a plane was full, another was rolled out. The shuttle's slogan was, Imagine Life Without Us. It was sold in 1988, and in its present incarnation is known as the American Airlines Shuttle. And just a side note on that, Americans uh, really came up with the original idea for the shuttle back in the uh, 1940s under C.R. Smith. American never launched the shuttle at that time because they couldn't figure out how to do it and make money. 
But on April 30, 1961, Eastern inaugurated the Eastern Airlines Shuttle, initially 95 or 96 seat Lockheed 1049 Super Constellations left New York LaGuardia every two hours from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. to Washington National and to Boston. On August 1st, LaGuardia Boston became hourly, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. out of each city. LaGuardia DCA followed in the next month or two. Fare in May of 1961 was $10.95 to Boston, $12.75 to Washington. Rail coach to Washington was $9.68. Passengers could pay in cash after boarding, so the fare soon dropped a few cents to $12 and $14, including the 10% federal tax. Reservations were not needed, seat assignments were not given, and initially no check-in was required and no boarding passes were issued. But Eastern guaranteed everyone a seat. If the flight filled up, another aircraft was ready to go. On Sunday after Thanksgiving 1961, the, two, the 10 p.m. flights between LaGuardia and Boston carried 623 passengers on seven aircraft. The Sunday following Thanksgiving was always the shuttle's busiest day. On 1 December 1968, the shuttle carried 21,760 passengers on 94 first-section flights and 197 extra sections. The shuttle peaked in 1963 when weekdays saw hourly super constellations 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. each way, LaGuardia Boston and LaGuardia DC, hourly DC-7Bs 730 to 1030 each way, Newark to Boston, super constellations every two hours 730 to 930 each way, Newark to DCA, and five flights each way, DCA to Boston. In 1966, the New York Times reported that the shuttle was carrying 86% of the Washington-New York area air traffic and 76% of the traffic to Boston. It said the shuttle lost several million dollars a year until about two years ago. Electris took over the first sections, LaGuardia-Boston and LaGuardia-DCA, in September-October 1965. The last Constellation shuttle flights were in 1968. Electras became backups to 727s in 1966, then to DC-9s in 1967. In later years, New York Air, a subsidiary of Frank Lorenzo's Texas Air Corp, started a competing shuttle service in 1980s with DC-9s. Lorenzo acquired Eastern in 1986 and had to sell New York's air shuttle service to Pan Am World Airways to get Department of Justice antitrust clearance. By 1986, the two shuttles were in intense competition. Pan Am had a market share of around 45% and touted its full-service product in comparison to Eastern's no-frills products. In 1987, Lorenzo unsuccessfully tried to sell the Eastern shuttle to his own Texas Air, apparently for the purpose of transferring cash out of Eastern in the form of advisory fees. Eastern's labor unions challenged the sale in federal court and won a judgment requiring union bargaining in connection with the sale. By then, the shuttle was one of the few profitable operations under the Eastern brand. In October 1988, the shuttle's ground rights and 17 aircraft were sold to Donald Trump to form the Trump shuttle with the first flight in June 1989. 
Just a year later, the company was in financial default and surrendered to become Shuttle Inc., which U.S. Air entered into an agreement to operate in 1992, then bought in 1997. The shuttle service began as U.S. Air Shuttle, which is presently known as the American Airlines Shuttle. Pan Am's competing shuttle service was bought by Delta in 1991 and became the Delta Shuttle. And from the book, in a pressure cooker that has generated as many as 72 extra sections per day, the Air Shuttle's safety record has been impressive. In the first 19 years of its existence, with nearly 60 million passengers flown, there has been only one fatal accident, a mid-air collision between a TWA-707 and an Eastern Constellation operation as a Newark-Boston Newark shuttle, flight December the 5th, 1965. The Eastern captain, Charles White, crash-landed the Connie on a hillside after the impact severed his controls, a miraculous job of airmanship in which White maneuvered solely with his throttles. A single passenger died, along with White himself, who re-entered the burning plane in a vain effort to save him. We've also told that story of Captain White and that mid-air collision on this uh, Eastern radio program. Equally impressive is the shuttle's on-time performance, among the best in the industry, consistently running between 92 and 94 percent. In a corridor's combat zone, such on-time performance is close to a miracle. It is achieved by the simple process of dispatching first sections as soon as they are filled, usually 20 minutes ahead of scheduled departure. The second section usually leaves the gate right on schedule, and the policy is dispatch the final section no later than 20 minutes after scheduled departure. The shuttle also rates high grades in baggage handling, a constant industry headache but almost foolproof in the air shuttle operation. When it first started, there was a long and loud debate over where to put the usual claim checks on luggage. McIntyre, the Eastern president at the time, argued against it, insisting that passengers could simply leave their bags in a special pre-boarding area and claim it in a similar area at destination. It's still done that way, and the air shuttle has the fewest complaints and the lowest lost bag percentage in the industry. One of the few bags reported lost belonged to an Eastern vice president who was raising hell until someone discovered he had left it in the men's room at National Airport. Naturally, the shuttle is plagued by the usual delays applicable to any carrier, but on one occasion fell victim to Eastern's admirable practice of dispatching each flight as soon as it's loaded, a procedure which comes close to being perpetual motion. It was a busy Friday afternoon, and the shuttle boardings at LaGuardia that day looked like an assembly line. Pull up, full up, pull, fill up, and pull out. One extra section was completely full. The stewardesses had welcomed everyone aboard. The captain PA's, cabin PA safety message had been delivered, and the plane just sat there. After ten minutes of waiting, the senior flight attendant went up to the cockpit to inquire about the delay. She got the answer quickly. Nobody was in the cockpit. They'd run out of standby crews. Then there's the ultimate air shuttle story, generated by the debacle of the 1968 air traffic controllers slowdown that almost brought the U.S. air transportation system to a halt. At the height of the snarled mess, a passenger boarded a shuttle flight in Washington shortly before 5 p.m., landed in New York less than 50 minutes later, and was so impressed that he lagged behind to praise the duplaning pilot. Captain, he said pleasantly, I just want to compliment you and Eastern. 
I was expecting all kinds of inconvenience. I figured the 5 o'clock shuttle would be lucky to land at Guardia by 8. Yet here I am, and it's only a few minutes after 6. Thanks, the captain said dryly. But you were on the 2 o'clock shuttle. On November 1, 1977, Eastern retired the last of its electrics, probably the shuttle's best all-around airplane, and went all-jet with the DC-9 as the primary aircraft and Boeing 727-100s as backup. On more than one occasion, an Electra beat a DC-9 to destination by as much as 30 minutes, even though it was operating as an extra section. The prop jet's ability to operate more efficiently at lower altitudes made the difference but the electrode's maintenance cost had soared to the point where its versatility was no longer a major factor. It was costing Eastern $8,000 to replace a propeller that had only cost $2,700 when the plane was brand new. Prop overhaul alone for Eastern's last three electras required a 10-man shop crew in Miami, and some replacement parts were being built to order for an aircraft that was averaging only two hours daily utilization. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York, Eastern's Transcon. Serving Pablo Picasso by Marianne Grimer. My husband Robert Grimer and I both worked for Eastern Airlines. I was working in the Ionosphere Lounge at JFK. Bob was then a sales representative for the airline in New York. I was at my desk at the front door of the Ionosphere Lounge where we checked in the first class passengers. We didn't have computers then and everyone had to sign in. Bob was about to take a client to the gate when a very important person and his entourage entered the lounge. The guest was Pablo Picasso. We exchanged greetings and I asked if Mr. Picasso would sign the book that was on my desk. One of the men that was escorting him said that was impossible. He would not allow him to sign his name. After he was seated for a while, I asked if we could take a photo of Mr. Picasso. That was not allowed either. So someone took a picture of Bob and me instead while Mr. Picasso was still in the lounge. The autograph I never received might be worth something today. Come with us to a place where the cold ends and the warm begins. Eastern's Winter Wonderland. It starts in Florida and follows the sun to the Bahamas and Puerto Rico.
Eastern Airlines, and Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. The two names are synonymous. You think of Eastern, you think of Captain Eddie. You think of Captain Eddie, you think of Eastern. I think a good description of Captain Eddie was he was a tough old bird. Just how tough was he? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to read from the book, From the Captain to the Colonel, by uh, Rob, Robert Serling. And it's about the plane crash of Eastern Flight 21, of which Captain Eddie survived. Eddie, at the time, was about 50 years old. He never regarded himself as clairvoyant or possessing ESP. But some of his associates wondered, and Sheppy, Sheppy was his personal assistant, was one of them. On the afternoon of the 26th, she noticed he was unusually restless, wandering around his office and sometimes staring aimlessly off into space. He was scheduled to leave for Birmingham that same night, and at first she blamed it on his reluctance to make the trip. He had previously agreed to be in the Alabama city on the 27th, for a speech before the Birmingham Aviation Committee, and just that morning had asked his host to postpone his appearance, explaining that he had a director's meeting scheduled in Miami on February the 28th. I just can't squeeze Birmingham in, he had complained to Sheppy. Let's call him and I'll explain my schedule's too crowded. I'll go down there later. The Aviation Committee wasn't too happy, and Rickenbacker got the impression they thought he was snubbing them. The more he dwelled on their phone conversation, the more he began to fret until finally summoned Sheppy. Get those Birmingham people back, Sheppy, he ordered. What the hell? I won't get much sleep, but there's no point in offending anyone. The Birmingham speech ranked below the board meeting in priority. He planned to ask his directors to approve a $5 million expenditure for additional DC-3s. But Eastern had applied for authority to operate a Chicago-Birmingham-Miami route and EVR wanted the support of civic leaders. It was just more than anything else that weighed his decision to make a trip he really didn't want to make. He packed a briefcase with papers for the director's meeting and then began his pacing. It was late in the afternoon when it suddenly dawned on Sheppy she had seen him this way before, the day preceding the Daytona Beach accident. She said nothing but the disturbing word premonition sprinted through her mind. His plane left New York at 7.10 that night, Flight 21, the Mexico Flyer, bound for Brownsville with intermediate stops at Washington, Atlanta, Birmingham, New Orleans, and Houston. Rickenbacker was pleased to find the aircraft was one of EAL's five brand new DSTs, Douglas Sleepers, transport, the designation for DC-3s equipped with burst. He didn't intend to sleep, but Eastern's DSTs had a small private room just behind the cockpit called the Sky Lounge. It afforded privacy and a chance for Rickenbacker to read over the notes for the Birmingham speech. The flight was over Spartanburg, South Carolina, when the captain, Atlanta-based Jim Perry, came out of the cockpit and stopped by the lounge to talk to his boss. The weather in Atlanta isn't too good, he confided. We may have some trouble getting in. Rickenbacker later recalled that he made some remark to the effect you're the captain. Do what you think best. Perry nodded and continued his way through the cabin, chatting pleasantly, if briefly, with passengers. In those days, all airlines expected their captains to perform this public relations gesture. The last weather report Perry received before starting his letdown showed how low but legal ceiling and visibility, and he continued a normal instrument approach. 
in this case, following the range beam on the path that would take the flight over and past the airport, then making a 180-degree turn and riding the beam back toward the assigned runway. They were in that final turn, left wing low, when Rickenbacker felt a shudder as the wing scraped the tops of some pine trees. Simultaneously, Perry jerked the wing up in a move so violent and sudden that Rickenbacker, sensing trouble, jumped out of his lounge seat and started toward the back of the plane. He was still in the aisle when the right wing crunched into the trees and ripped off. The impact was severe enough to somersault the 12-ton airliner nose first. It landed upside down on its tail. The fuselage ruptured into two pieces, the brake occurring in the middle of the cabin where Captain Eddie had been standing. Rickenbacker was hurtled toward the ceiling as the DC-3 flipped over, coming down so hard on the armrest of a seat that the impact crushed his left hip. Miraculously, there was no fire. Perry had cut the ignition and light switches the minute the right wing hit the trees, and the fuel pouring out of the torn wing tank somehow failed to ignite. Rickenbacker found himself lying on top of the dead body of steward Clarence Moore. They had been talking in the lounge just before the crash. Moore sitting in the aisle next seat next to Captain Eddie, who was by the window. EVR never did know whether the steward followed him down the cabin aisle or whether the violence of the somersault propelled him rearward. Moaning, he was the only thing Rickenbacker heard after the terrible sound of tearing metal ceased. He was soaked in his own and probably Moore's blood, and with a throb of terror he discovered he was virtually paralyzed. Then some voices, mostly dazed and pained. Eleven of the sixteen persons aboard had survived the crash, but several subsequently died of injuries. Both pilots were dead. Rickenbacker remembered later that some survivors were stumbling around the wreckage in nightclothes or underwear. They had been in their berths. He himself was drenched not only with blood, but gasoline. It was raining, and Rickenbacker heard one man call out, Let's start a fire so we can keep warm. For God's sake, no, Captain Eddie managed to rasp. The spilled fuel will explode. Who the hell is that? the voice asked. Rickenbacker, don't light any matches. Just sit tight, and somebody will come get us. That's the end of part one, and we'll stay tuned for part two. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. This is called One Flight by Kathleen Rogo Wolf. Eastern Airlines gave me the opportunity to see the world from one coast of the United States to the other, from the Caribbean to South America, and with passes to Europe and Africa and beyond. I was so proud to fly for such an honorable airline with a remarkable history. As a flight attendant, I worked hundreds of flights. I served thousands of passengers. It's the people and their stories and the friendships that I remember most. One flight in particular I will never forget. It was a round trip from Miami to Havana, the only two legs left to fly that day. I had never been to Cuba. From the air, the island was beautiful, a jewel shining in the sun. It could have been any Caribbean island, only this wasn't any island. 
This was Castro's Cuba. The flight over was uneventful. The return was anything but. As the passengers boarded, I noticed something odd. There were a lot of men, and almost all of them walked slowly and haltingly. Most were accompanied by someone. Airtime from Havana to Miami is only 30 minutes. Flight attendants had to prepare the cabin and pass out immigration and customs forms for entry into the United States. These had to be completed before we landed. Along with another flight attendant, I handed out the forms. One man said he didn't have a pen. No problem. I gave him mine. But he was unable to hold the pen because his hand shook so badly. He explained he had been in prison in an unlit cell for 20 years, and he was almost blind from living in the dark. Would I help him fill out the form? Then the man across the aisle said he couldn't see either, and another said he didn't think he could write anymore. I literally sank to my knees, incredulous. I knew about Cuba, but I didn't know this. These men were dissidents. They had protested Castro's regime when they were young, in their teens and in their twenties. They had been arrested and put in prison, in cells without lights, in rooms with little space to move. Years had passed, and now they'd been released, and Eastern was taking them to their new home, to their new country. They were now in their thirties and forties, yet they all looked much older. Some had gray hair, all walked hesitantly, like the aged do when they're unsure of their footing. Each of them had been released to an accompanying sponsor, as was agreed upon by Cuba and the United States in the Refugee Resettlement Program. Now they were free. Their new lives would begin in the United States of America, and I was privileged to escort them there. We only had these 30 minutes to complete all the forms on the airplane, or the airplane would not be cleared by customs when we landed. I crawled my way along the aisle, helping as many as I could fill out their papers. After we landed, we handed over the forms to the authorities. I stood by the front door as the passengers deplaned. One man stepped off and asked if he was on U.S. soil. Yes, I said, and then he did something that will live in my mind forever. He very slowly knelt down and kissed the ground, and then he cried. Another man did the same, and then another. I flew to Cuba only that one time. I will never forget that flight or those people, and I will never forget what it means to live in a free country. Thank you.
We've looked at Eastern Airlines in its early days. Why don't we move forward a little bit and let's see what role Eastern had during the Second World War. This comes from the book From the Captain to the Colonel to Robert, from Robert Surley. This will probably be a, a three-part series, so we'll break it down a little bit. The war was the first time in Rickenbacker's airline career that he did not devote his entire time to Eastern. This was not surprising, for during World War II, there was no need for normal marketing and sales efforts. There was a virtual moratorium on route expansion, and the main task for every carrier was to keep its emasculated fleet in the air, covering pre-war schedules with about half its pre-war aircraft. Eastern alone lost more than 50% of its fleet, either selling the planes outright or leasing them to the Army. In the technical sense, it could have lost every plane, for President Roosevelt wanted the government to take over the airlines and operate them for the duration. FDR had even signed an executive order to that effect, but tore it up after the president of the Air Transport Association, Edgar Gorell, went to bat for the industry and convinced Roosevelt he didn't need to nationalize it to provide an efficient military transport system. Gorell, a tough ex-Army colonel himself and a vastly underrated figure in U.S. aviation history, had had the foresight to blueprint that system as far back as 1936, and it had been updated well before Pearl Harbor. In essence, the Gorel Plan created a civil air reserve that could be turned over to the military almost overnight in the event of a major emergency, furnishing not only transport planes, but flight crews and ground personnel. And that was to be Eastern's principal role during the war, flying a military airlift with more planes than it had given up to the Army. They were mostly big Curtis C-46s, a twin-engine transport with one main virtue, huge cargo capacity, and a myriad list of technical faults. To operate these Eastern established a route, a separate military transport division, or MTD, and its aircraft painted in that particular army drab that can't seem to decide whether it's Oliver Brown, naturally were dubbed the Great Chocolate Fleet. MTD was in existence for three and a half years, a period in which it carried some 45.5 million pounds of war cargo and 130 passengers on flights covering nearly 33.5 million miles, most of them over open water or primitive jungles. In some respects, it had the finest operational record compiled by any airline during the war. Not one scheduled flight was ever canceled and only one aircraft was lost. Eastern's reputation for being a bad weather airline was carried over into MTD. Headquarters were in Miami, and at the height of its operation, the MTD had more than 500 Eastern employees assigned to it. It began on a modest scale with a conversion of six DC-3s from passenger to all-cargo configuration, and these flew only domestically for a month. On April 14, 1942, Sid Shannon and a number of senior pilots took off on a survey flight over the route that would be Eastern's prime responsibility in 1944, a 6,500-mile hop from Miami to Accra, Africa, via San Juan, Trinidad, Georgetown, Belém, Natal, and Ascension Island. The Trinidad, Georgetown, Belém, Natal legs were flown over uninhabited jungles, while the other legs involved overwater hops. 
Eastern had no previous ocean flying experience, and only pilots with at least 10,000 hours of log flight time were assigned to MTD. The logistics and handicaps were enormous. The Trinidad airstrip, for example, was surrounded by jungle and was located at the base of a mountain range whose peaks were usually obscured by clouds. There was no such luxury as a missed approach at Trinidad. A pilot had to be right the first time. Maintenance was a problem, particularly at the start when there were no facilities along the route. In the early days, a mechanic went on each flight, but this proved impractical as the Army been, began beefing up the chocolate fleet with new C-46s, and Eastern found that the aircraft outnumbered the available mechanics. A temporary solution was to station two mechanics at Bourne-Quinn Field, Puerto Rico. One would work on two planes each morning, board the second aircraft, and then fly with it down to Trinidad, where he would service the same two planes for their return trip the next day. He would come back to Puerto Rico on the second aircraft, service the two ships all over again, and then get some sleep while the second mechanic went through the identical grueling schedule. The arrangement lasted only until Eastern received enough C-46s to extend its operations beyond Trinidad. MTD then had to station mechanics at each stop, and few mechanics today would or could work under such horrendous conditions. The fields at Georgetown and British Guiana, and Belém and Natal in Brazil were airports only in the sense that they had runways. Atkinson Field at Georgetown was a case in point. Located halfway between Miami and Natal, it was 2,000 miles from each point. Atkinson's runway was nothing more than a narrow clearing hacked out of the jungle. For a time, Eastern sole and very lonely employee at Atkinson was a mechanic whose living quarters consisted of a mud hut with a roof made of dung and palm leaves. Not until later in the war was a crude barracks built for the additional men assigned there. The pilots had to avoid flying over French Guiana, which came under German control after France collapsed. They usually stayed five miles offshore, but more than one eastern plane came home with bullet holes in the fuselage because it had wandered closer than the five-mile limit. Eastern's base at Belém was at Vandekens Field, located 12 miles from the Amazon Delta town. This Brazilian facility, like the field at Georgetown, had been carved out of solid jungle and some of the trees towered as high as 200 feet. It was another airport where no pilot dared try a missed approach in a heavily laden C-46. Overnighting pilots stayed in Belém's Grand Hotel and so did the mechanics, occasionally. The latter worked on an average of four aircraft a day, starting early in the morning and often finishing up close to midnight. At that hour, a mechanic was usually too tired to make the 12-mile trip over a road that was more of a wide path, so he would curl up on top of some cargo inside a plane and grab what sleep he could. His breakfast consisted of emergency rations he had got out of the aircraft, and no pilot ever begrudged this appropriation of supplies. Things were slightly better at Natal, where there was also a grand hotel some 15 miles from Paraminium Field. At least the weather was a bit drier and cooler than either Belém or Georgetown. The biggest problem was the field's soil, fine-grained sand which a stiff South Atlantic breeze could whip into a first cousin of a Sahara sandstorm. The hotel beds were straw, mattresses plunked on top of wood planks but these sleeping quarters were palatial compared to the food service. The meals ran from poor to unbearable, and the waiters spoke no English. 
Reporter Bill Wooten, later to become public relations representative of Miami, was assigned to cover some MTD flights where he witnessed firsthand language barrier problem. If a guy from Eastern wanted an egg, he reminisces, it almost had, he almost had to lay one. He'd flap his arms and cackle until the waiter got the message. Until the boys got to pick up a little Portuguese, they had to work out some ingenious sign language to get served. Wooten also found out how difficult the flying conditions were. When the Army finally got permission to bypass French Guiana directly, Eastern began operating a more direct course over the Brazilian interior. Wooten reported that this, what this involved in these words. Although the direct route saved time, it also brought hazards not confronted on the coast. In the first place, the entire thousand-mile stretch was over almost solid jungle, as wild and dense as any in the world. There were no dependable radio aids over most of the route, and the maps pilots had to use were neither complete nor accurate. Many high mountains in the area were not even indicated on the maps, and many of those shown were higher or lower than indicated, and frequently as much as 50 miles from their designated locations. The intertropical front, a barrier of cumulus turbulent clouds, offering tower into the stratosphere and extending to within 500 feet of sea level, frequently blotted, blotted out most landmarks and made flying at about 9,000 feet a necessity. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. We recently heard stories of Eastern Airlines' role during World War II. Here's another story from that same period from the book From the Captain to the Colonel by Robert Serling, and we're going to learn about a specific employee during that time. Services weren't the only distant breakthrough resulting from the shortage of able-bodied males. Women were hired in ever-increasing numbers, and they were assigned tasks supposedly beyond their female capability. One was a young lady named Margaret Maggie Robinson, and her story is the story of all. Maggie, now Eastern's manager of consumer affairs, joined Eastern St. Louis Reservation staff in 1944 and gives a vivid account of what it was to work for an airline in the war years. Eastern had stopped serving St. Louis temporarily when service was cut back, but the station was reopened in 1944. With the station manager, a chief agent who was like a supervisor, and five girls. We had a small office on the second floor of the Lambert Field Terminal. Our reservations table was borrowed from the coffee shop downstairs and covered with green oil cloth. We recorded all reservations on 3x5 cards and filed them in a cigar box, arranged by days of the month, alphabetically, and current. Eastern was very strict about our wearing correct uniforms. I remember we had to have blue shoes and sometimes we had to borrow ration coupons from friends in order to buy a pair. And we figuratively had to wear many hats. Even if you were assigned to reservations, you were also expected to work the ticket counter prior to flight departure. 45 minutes before flight left, you rushed from reservations down to the counter and began to check in passengers. 
We had big limousines bringing people from the downtown hotels, and I always wondered how we, he, how we could ever take care of a full plane load, 21 passengers. Actually, there was almost as much to do checking in 21 as there is today checking in 200. There'd be a long manifest on which you had to record each passenger's weight, destination, and baggage, how many pieces, their weight, and the check numbers, plus whether he'd need limo service when he arrived. You started talking to passengers the minute the first one came up to the counter and could never stop talking because if you did, you were dead. We used to keep one eye on the clock, seeing how close we were to flight time. After everyone was checked in, you'd lock up the counter, put on a uniform hat, and run outside to help load last-minute baggage after you made the flight announcement. When the last bag was loaded and everyone on board, you'd pull back the steps, salute the captain, and run back to reservation where you'd start teletyping information to downline stations, how many limos would be needed at each stop, who's making connecting flights, and so forth. We had three flights in a day and three flights out, so you were kept pretty busy. St. Louis was a terminating and originating point on the system, with the first inbound flight arriving at 5.30 in the morning. I worked from 4 a.m. to noon, six days a week. There were no such benefits as shift differential pay, overtime pay, or holiday pay. On your day off, you'd usually come out to the airport to see how things were going, and invariably you'd wind up helping out. All this for a starting salary of $125 a month. But the airlines were like that, not just in the war years, but before and for a while after the war. The training program for reservations consisted of reading Eastern's traffic manual. There was only one desk in reservations, and I'd have to study in the terminal lobby. Once you read through the manual, you were considered trained. We did have a training school in New York, and I wanted to go there badly. But once I had read the traffic manual, they figured I had enough of an airline education. Rickenbacker himself gave her the nickname of Maggie. She met him four weeks after she started working in St. Louis and will never forget that experience. The station manager had warned her, Don't say anything to him unless you know what the hell you're talking about. Captain Eddie arrived and, as usual, began chatting with the employees on duty. For some reason, the topic of a conversation centered around the difficulties of landing at certain airports, and Rickenbacker mentioned one that presented a particular problem because the beam sways, meeting the electronic rain signal. Maggie didn't know a rain signal from a spark plug, but she was positive she was well-versed on beams. After all, Lambert had one that revolved from the top of the control tower. I know just what you mean, Captain, she blurted. I came to work every morning at 4 o'clock, and I see it going around and around. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Transitions by Nancy Hall Morton. 
Like most airline families, mine has moved several times as I grew up, leaving behind sunny Los Angeles for Detroit and then Kansas City where I spent my teen years. During this time, my dad, Floyd Hall, had transitioned from U.S. Air Force to Transworld Airlines as a pilot like his two brothers, Howard and Wesley, and was gradually moved from chief pilot into management positions. By the time I reached high school, Dad had become TWA's vice president of operations. He had begun to develop long-range profit planning for airlines, a novel concept in the industry at that time. When the board of directors of Eastern Airlines approached him with an offer to become president, he was intrigued by the opportunity to implement a bold plan to develop a partnership with employees and enhance a sense of pride in Eastern. Among the first steps was to improve the on-time performance of the airline and to modernize everything from the Eastern logo to the paint colors used on the exterior of the fleet, to the color coordination of the interiors, and to the designer uniforms for the employees. In 1961, while my sister and I were finishing high school in Kansas City, Dad was commuting to New York. We were allowed to accompany him and my mother on one of these trips, and we visited the eastern offices at Rockefeller Plaza. The highlight was meeting Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, the colorful war hero. He was a gracious elderly man who talked at length about his love for the airline he had built. He honored my sister Jean and me by presenting both of us with a signed copy of Rickenbacker, an autobiography, a book which I still cherish today. At that moment, I understood the enormous challenge my father was undertaking, but the sparkle in his eyes was unmistakable to me. He couldn't wait to get started. Wow. It's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women, keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories, if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's eneal, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, eneilholland at yahoo.com. It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114, and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you will be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. 
And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more Memories of a Great Airline Eastern next week at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week. Thank you.